Good morning. Hope everybody's doing well on this beautiful morning. About that worship today. It's always awesome when we get to see the kids up here too. You ever had one of those days where you're feeling pretty good about yourself and uh, feeling pretty pretty well and then something happens to kind of bring you back down to earth? Yeah, like maybe you shouldn't feel so good. Yeah, it's like when you're singing really well and then Joseph comes to... <laughs> <laughs> which we love it we love it when he visits with us <laughs> um, I have those kind of days all the time most of the time they happen on the golf course <laughs> because I can play some decent golf some weeks yeah, you know not good but decent decent enough and uh, then the next week it's like nothing that I did the week before works the same way and I play terribly and this happened uh, on our last Monday golf night of the year a couple of weeks ago I'd played pretty well during the scramble that we had Uh, you know played reasonably well I thought hit some good shots and everything and we got second which is fine we the other team had a ringer that was very very good Um, but I'm not I'm not I'm not upset by that Maybe maybe a little bit. I don't know. Uh, anyway, this Monday, a couple weeks ago, I just, I, I really could not figure it out. Like, I was struggling. But then I, I was getting a little frustrated, as happens with me on a golf course, which is silly. Um, you know, you shouldn't get angry at golf because you don't have anybody to blame but you. But anyway... Uh, I did start to feel a little bit better by the last hole, though. Like, I had calmed down and uh, hit a pretty good shot on that hole. Like, nice, straight drive. It's one of those where you're just like, okay, I'm back. Um, and so I, then I started to head out and walk to my ball. And the tee box, uh, where on this last hole, it's, it's on a hill. It's a little elevated. And so we walked the course, and I usually walk off the front of the hill. But it had rained at some point before that day. And I found some mud, and I slipped, and I thought I got it. And then I slipped again, and then I thought I got it. And then I slipped again, and I didn't get it. <laughs> I went down hard on my backside, and my golf bag, and my pride. But I wasn't hurt, thankfully. I did finish the hole, though, with a very wet and muddy shorts, legs, shoes, pride. And, of course, I couldn't do this in front of no one either. Like, there had to be four other guys in our group playing, playing there. Dan was there. He's, he remembers. <laughs> thankfully, though, they are very gracious, the men of our church, wonderful people. That's a humbling experience. <laughs> And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about humility, not necessarily the humility of being humiliated, which thankfully I wasn't here much, um, but humility as in being humble. For the last two months, we've been going through the letter of 1 Peter in the Bible. This letter was written by Peter, who is one of the earliest followers or apostles of Jesus. And Peter was writing this letter to a group of churches that are located in Asia Minor. We're located in Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey, just a little bit north of where Israel is. Today we're going to be finishing up our study of 1 Peter, looking at the final chapter of the letter, chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to open to chapter 5 with me. 
open to chapter 5 with me. Um, and that's where we're going to be today. So in the last few chapters, Peter has really been focusing on the meat of this message to these churches. This last chapter finishes with specific instructions both to the leaders of these churches as well as to the congregation itself, and then one final message for all of them. And it's, it's a small little section, but there is a lot of information here that we can glean some really good, uh, really good uh, instructions from. So if you have First uh, Peter 5, let's dive in with verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who entrusted, or those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So Peter is beginning this section by addressing the elders in the church. One thing that's important to note is, uh, I just found it interesting too, is in the Greek manuscripts, there's actually a little connecting word in there, like a therefore. It'd be the, the equivalent to therefore. It's not translated in the NIV, and I'm not sure why. But it just reminds us that all of this is connected. So the passage previous is connected to this one. Um, so uh, Peter speaking to the elders in the churches, and this isn't elder as in like the older people of the church. It would be the church leadership. This word could also be translated as overseer or even sometimes pastor. Peter's not coming at them as well and, and talking to them as the apostle here. Now he does address the letter as Peter, an apostle of Christ, but in this section, he, he words it a little bit differently. He says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, as a fellow overseer. He's somebody who's in the trenches that's doing the same work that they're doing. And this, this work of leading a church, leading churches probably for him, and he's appealing to them as a fellow elder, getting on the same level as they are, being a little bit more um, relatable, I would say. Peter's going through similar things probably as his readers, and that helps him relate to them better. Now, he does bolster his credentials, though, by saying that he was an eyewitness, a witness to Christ's sufferings. But, I mean, if you read it, does it really strengthen his credentials? I mean... This is why I mean that. If we look at Christ's suffering as the time of Gethsemane, time on the cross, where was Peter during those? Like at Gethsemane, he was asleep. And on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, Peter wasn't there. He denied Jesus three times. So Peter's actually giving us a look at, at his biggest failure when his courage failed and he denied Jesus three times. So why would he bring this up? Well, if you look at all of this, um, all of this letter, but even just this section, it's really based on Peter's own experiences with Jesus. He was a witness to his sufferings, both at Gethsemane and the cross, both times that Peter fails when he's asleep and denies Jesus. But then he also mentions this revealed glory, the glory which Peter witnessed where Jesus was transfigured before him, and two other apostles. 
And he uses that. It's like, that's the future glory that we are going to have when Jesus returns. And we are in an eternal life with him. Peter then gives instructions to these elders of these churches. And these instructions, we still apply to our leadership today. Our elders, our pastors. You may remember I read this passage when we ordained our two newest elders. And now, just because these are instructions to elders doesn't mean that everybody else should tune out. You don't get to take a quick nap or zone out on this. I am sorry. Um, It's important for us that are not in leadership to also know these and hear these, um, partly because we want to be able to hold our leadership accountable to what God has requested of them. And we only are able to do that if we know what it is. God has requested of them, God has commanded them to do. Um, not just this list, but also the lists written by Paul in, in the pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus. The leadership, the elders, the pastors, we all need to be, uh, we need to be led by following God's directions from what Peter and Paul have laid out. And if we're not, then we need to be held accountable to that. So let's look at the instructions. Really, it's just one major piece of instruction with some supporting things to help flesh it out. So to the, these leaders of the churches, he says to be shepherds of God's flock that he has placed under their care, to watch over them. That's really the role of the elders, to be a shepherd, to lead people along the right path, to protect them from their enemies, to care for them, to feed them, to love them. And that's what our leadership's goal here is at Maple Grove. It's all of these things. Our leadership prays for you every time we meet. And we have a, we've got a text thread as well that when we know of something, we will pray for it, all of our guys. Pray over your hurts, your pains, your losses. But we also celebrate the wins, the good things that happens. We want what's best for you. We bring you to, to give you spiritual food. We bring you scripture every week up here. And, and we do this from a place of love. And so elders are to watch over the flock as shepherds. And Peter contrasts that this, what this should and shouldn't look like. First, he says that you, you do it not because you must do it, but because you're willing to do it. For leaders, that's a big thing. You've got to be willing to do it. Not everybody is. We, we don't lead because somebody's asked us. We don't lead because we think it's like the next step in the Christian process or walk or anything. We, we do it because we, we want to do it. We do it because we get to do it, because God's called us to do it. He wants us to be willing. And then, Peter says, you're not leading to pursue dishonest gain but you're eager to serve. I, I tend to uh, mis- put the pronunciation on the wrong spot there because I tend to pronunciate eager as the, the high point, but really it should be serve. We are eager to serve. Leadership's not about you. It's about using your God-given gifts, talents, and life to serve others. That's how Jesus led. I mean, think about it. He lived this humble life that he really didn't need to because he's God. He can have all the glory and honor and praise and fireworks and thunder and lightning and all of that. But he didn't. 
He consistently modeled servant leadership. He served the needs of others. I think that's probably best demonstrated right before the Last Supper when he washes his disciples' feet. Leaders don't lead to find some sort of personal gain. It's about being eager to serve. And the third thing that he writes here is that leaders don't lord it over those who are entrusted to them, but instead are examples to the flock. We don't want anybody to think that the eldership is some sort of high-ranking office where you get all high and mighty and you're like, I, I'm an elder now, and so you must listen to me. Uh, you know, that reminds me of the first time that I got promoted into a leadership position when I was younger, in my early 20s. Um, and I pretty much did everything wrong um, in leading. That little bit of power that I had went straight to my head. And uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't a great leader. Sometimes I was all right, but I, I really wasn't that good of a leader. And hopefully in 20 years, I've matured a little bit. But the idea is to not lord it over the flock. I mean, what good does that do anyway? But just like being eager to serve, the leaders need to be examples. The leadership is walking the same path the flock is. Like we're on the same journey, just usually a little bit out in front, showing you how to go. That's why it's leading That means their lives, as they walk the path, should be shining examples of Christ's work. But do understand, our leaders are all human, and they will stumble. They will struggle sometimes. But then, hopefully, they've got a different response to it than the rest of us might, or the world does. And we can watch how they respond And we see how they go to the Lord in repentance and ask forgiveness. They go to the people who they've hurt and ask forgiveness. Make things right. And that can still be, they they, they can be wonderful examples even when they stumble and how they respond to that. And that should happen less and less as you mature in Christ. Ultimately, Peter writes, the local shepherds are really only tending the flock for a limited time anyway because we are awaiting the great shepherd to return. The chief shepherd. Warren Wearsby writes, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who died for the sheep. That's in John 10. And then the great shepherd who lives for the sheep from Hebrews 13, and the chief shepherd who comes for the sheep from this passage. And the reward for taking care of his sheep as we await that return will be a crown of glory that will never pass away. This culture at the time would have known about the ancient Greek Olympics and the, the winners, the victors, would receive this crown It was a crown of olive leaves, an olive branch that was made into a crown. And I had one of these ordered, and it's in Kentucky right now. So I can't show you my olive, and I'm sad. Now I'm going to have an olive crown for nothing. (laughs) We'll see if we can jam it in next week's sermon, who knows. (laughs) For something, though, that is so coveted, like that, that would have been an amazing prize to win, right? So coveted. That thing's got an expiration date because 
Like, it's not attached to anything. It will die and wilt and fade. But the crown of glory that Christ will give does not have an expiration date. It lasts forever. And so elders, we've got elders here. Elders, be shepherds. Watch over your flock willingly, eager to serve, and be good examples. And then Peter moves to the congregations. In verse 5, he says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Now Peter is directing his attention to you who are younger, he says. And, and this could be taken in a couple of ways. It could literally mean the younger people in the congregation. But of course, since the verses in the Bible, they don't appear on their own. Like they are a part of a context. They're part of another passage. You know, if we just look back at what we just said with the elders, it's not about age, it's about position. And so this would really seem that Peter's talking to those who are under the authority of the elders, which would be the rest of the congregation. And his instruction to them is pretty simple. Submit yourselves to your elders. The congregation is to submit themselves to the elders, and this means the congregation is to put themselves under the authority of the leadership of the elders in the church. And this is important. Submitting oneself to the authority of the elders means that you as the congregation it basically indicates, as one writer puts it, a general willingness to support the elders' decisions, unless they're asking you to sin, which our guys would not do that, but that is still something that we need to be careful about. And if you remember, if you think about, it takes us back to the earlier part of the letter where Peter is talking about submitting to earthly authority. It's the same thing. If you want a reminder about that, you can go back and read chapter 2, verses 13 and 17. Go back and watch the sermon that we did on that as well. This isn't a blind following of the elders either. Like, you are submitting to their authority, but like I said, we are to hold them accountable that what they're telling us is right and true. We want them to lead as God has directed them to lead. And if they're not, then we need to call them on it and hold them accountable to it. By the way, that's also one of the reasons that we have a you know, multiple elders, you know, a plurality. We call it a plurality of elders. It's partly so that, that not one of them has more power than others, and they can keep each other accountable. And it's not just one person kind of dictating how things should be in a church. And so, congregation, submit yourselves to your elders. And Peter started this sentence with, in the same way, which means you should submit yourselves to the leadership of the elders in the same way the elders are leading you, and that is with humility. And that's where Peter goes next as he's addressing everyone. And we go back to the beginning of verse 5 through 7 where he says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows, fa- shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So Peter's talking to the whole church right now, to the leaders, to the congregation, he said to the elders, shepherd the flock, and to the flock, submit yourselves to your elders, to the, your shepherds. And, and now to everyone, he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. 
Yeah. <laughs> Humility. <laughs> None of this is trying to, you know, is us trying to be better than. Like, we're all trying to approach our relationship within the church with humility toward one another. As one commentator writes, Peter's directive to everyone counters the possibility of blind submission to authority just as it sabotages all attempts to exercise authority on the basis of status. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. The fact that he uses clothing here is important because clothing signifies something, especially during that time when this was written. Clothing is a status marker, was a status marker back then. Um, And it's not that much different today. I mean, people want to dress in a unique style, a style that is theirs. Um, Like if you see me during the week, I'm typically wearing a dark t-shirt and jeans and chucks. And I dress up for church. I wear a shirt with buttons on it. Um, But clothing means something. But instead of each of us having a unique style, Peter wants us all to dress the same when it comes to how we interact with each other. We want to dress in humility, clothe ourselves in humility. And again, this humility is simply being humble. It's not thinking that we're better than. Instead, it's asking the question, how can I serve this person? How can we serve each other? And that's the point. And Peter quotes then Proverbs 3.34 with the reason where he says, God opposed opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand and he will lift you up. And frankly, it's got to mean a whole lot more if God is the one who's elevating you than if you're trying to elevate yourself. Then Peter tells them to cast their anxieties on God because he cares for you. Remember, some of the people in these churches, they were facing persecution. They were facing trials and suffering. These are anxiety-causing things. And Peter says, give that over to God because he cares for you. It's like what Paul writes in Philippians 4, verse 6, where he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then the psalmist who wrote Psalm 94 says this in verses 18 and 19. He says, When I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. God can carry the weight of your anxiety so that you don't have to. And it's not not easy to give that away, though, it seems. Like, to be able to give up that anxiety, to hand it over to God, sometimes it feels like we want to try and figure it out ourselves or hang on to it ourselves, or or we just can't understand how God can take care of that. But I would say, whatever you need to do to be able to do that, try. Try to do that. Jesus says um, in Matthew, you know, he says... uh, All you who are burdened and weary, come to me, for I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is light. My burden is light. Because he takes that. Give that over to God. Take that burden off your shoulders and give it to him. Peter then gives one final warning as he closes this letter. Verse 8 
Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Be alert and of sober mind. Do you remember, like we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the same exact phrase Peter said when he said that the end of all things was near. So we needed to be alert and of sober mind so that we may pray. And he repeats that command here, and he repeats it because there is an enemy in the devil, in Satan, who's always looking for somebody to devour. Peter likens him to a roaring lion, which made me think of that big cat rescue place you know, west of here. Anybody ever been there? A few people. Um, I love big cats. I took my nephew one time, and uh, I love tigers. I think they're beautiful animals. But when you're three feet from these animals, and there's just a chain link fence between you and them, you're like, ooh, you see the power of them. And they're very long teeth. <laughs> but you just realize how much power they have. And, and while we were out there, the lions, they got roaring at each other. And I don't know if you've ever been around a lion roaring, but um, I could feel it. Like, we weren't that close to them, and I could feel it in my chest. The vibrations of that. I mean, it was wild how much power was behind that. And, and that's who Peter's likening the devil to. And so if, if we are alert, though, and of sober mind, then we can easily follow the instructions that Peter gives to resist him and stand firm in your faith. And it won't really matter what he tries to do to you. Satan is powerful, but you've got God on your side. And God is far more powerful. And it's not to say to take the devil lightly, because I would never say that. Because all he needs is just one little foothold. But God is with you. And it's, then it's just like what Rome, uh, Paul writes in Romans 8.31. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Stand firm against the devil. God will protect you. Plus, he says, Peter says, you're not the only one that's going through suffering. There are others as well. And then he finishes this section off in verse 10 and 11 where he says, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. As we close this letter, I just want to read the final few verses here starting in verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We go back to verse 12. And in verse 12, the, the whole, it's the whole reason for this letter that Peter wrote to these churches. It's, it was to encourage them, to remind them of the true grace of God through Jesus Christ. 
they and we today need to stand fast in it. Standing strong. And I hope over the course of the last two months that this same encouragement has come to you. The grace of God that has come in Christ Jesus, saving us through his life, death, and resurrection. Like it said early on, chapter 1, Jesus Christ is a living hope. And as we called this series, he is our everyday hope. If you've not made a decision to follow Jesus, we invite you to do that today. If you have questions or just want to talk about it, we would love to talk about that with you. Would you pray with me as we close out? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for that amazing gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is that living, everyday hope that we can rest in. Father, I thank you for Peter's uh, letter and all of the things that, that we are able to glean from it and learn and still apply today. I thank you for the message to our elders to be shepherds of our flock, to lead them into the congregation, to submit to that authority for all of us to just be clothed in humility toward one another. You say in, uh, in John that that's how the world is going to know that we are your disciples, Lord, is how we love each other. And we only do that through humility. When we humble ourselves, we really don't have a whole lot to to give without you. But we can give your love to all of those around us. I pray that as we go through this week, that that would be our goal, to love others as you have loved us. Thank you so much, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.